This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. They are hulking, but graceful. Human-made whales that float in the air. For over 100 years, lighter-than-air aircraft have fascinated us, and they have this recurring, starring role in our dreams of an alternate reality, of a future that might have been, where cargo and passengers traverse the globe in a civilized fashion and dock elegantly on the mooring towers on top of Art Deco skyscrapers. If you've seen one in real life, it was likely a blimp emblazoned with the Goodyear logo. A blimp is a non-rigid airship, meaning that there's no structure inside the balloon. It's just a balloon. The shape is maintained by the pressure of the lifting gas inside. Then you add a little cockpit and engines and rudders on the outside of that big balloon to make it fly. Today's blimps are basically cute PR novelties. But for around 100 years, lighter-than-air aircraft were seriously proposed as the perfect design solution for all kinds of problems, even though none of these proposals actually happened. People just couldn't give up on the promise of airships. In the 90s, there was a company called Sky Station. They raised some $4.2 billion, or at least solicited it, to put 250 antenna-equipped airships to deliver internet service. This is Bill Hammack. He's the engineer guy on YouTube and an airship enthusiast. In the 80s, there was the British uh, Antarctic Survey. They revealed a hole in the ozone layer over the South Pole. And so pretty soon, a professor suggested sending blimps that dangled electrical wires to zap ozone-eating chemicals. Then in the 70s, they were supposed to help developing nations. Using a, a hybrid blimp to usher those nations into the 20th century. No, no need for roads, no need for railroads and tunnels and bridges, but just to lift stuff in. In the 1950s and 60s, nuclear-powered airships with unlimited energy and an unlimited capacity for work were proposed. In the 20s and 30s, they were to fulfill imperial ambitions. Both Germany and the British were looking for that. And the Americans, too. They had imperial ambitions in the Philippines. Of all those failed attempts to realize the full potential of airships, it was those imperial rigid airships heavily developed in the 20s and 30s that came the closest to actually changing the world. In an airship, you have a metal framework, and that houses gas bags that lift the ship. Those gas bags are arranged in the metal scaffolding like peas in a peapod. And then a cloth cover is stretched over that, and that cloth cover is not airtight. It protects the gas bags from weather. Underneath the fabric cover are not just gas bags. Because it's not a pressure vessel, they're able to build things inside the airship. Like crew quarters, dining rooms, lounges, all built into the metal framework. So people move around inside the thing that you might think of as the balloon. But it's not really a balloon. And that structure enables an airship to travel faster than a blimp because the force of the wind, for example, would deform the nose of a blimp. And it also allows the ship to be built much much bigger. You've maybe heard the term dirigible, which is the French name for an airship, or Zeppelin, which is a German company that makes airships. Zeppelin is like the Kleenex or Band-Aid of the airship world. But the proper term, as generic and boring as it sounds, is airship. The most promising, most opulent, rigid airship of its time, and I'm talking about the 1920s here, was Britain's R101. The R there stands for rigid. The rise and dramatic fall of Britain's last great airship is the primary subject of Bill Hammock's new book called Fatal Flight. Spoiler alert. When it comes to the dream of airships dominating the skies, the catastrophic and very public Hindenburg disaster 
may have been the final nail in the coffin, but it was the crash of R101 that built the coffin. R101 was supposed to connect the global British Empire. It was designed to fly from London to Karachi in five days. That's 10 days faster than by sea. Taking a plane that distance took 16 days because planes had to stop so often to refuel. Airships could also carry 30 to 40 times the cargo of airplanes. Airships just made so much sense for an empire whose reach exceeded its grasp. So Great Britain built R101 and R100, which was its sister ship that was supposed to go to Canada and back, as the first two rigid ships in a fleet that would give the crown dominance over the skies to match its centuries-long dominance of the seas. An airship is conceptually quite simple, but it's still an engineering marvel. It's a gargantuan, cigar-shaped math equation, balancing lift on one side of the equation and weight on the other. Minimizing the weight of the airship was always a challenge. There's that rigid metal framework, and that is one of the most difficult parts because that has to be lightweight yet strong. Yet R101 was supposed to match the sturdy luxury of a high-end ocean liner. I mean, I can just picture this white china that was trimmed with royal blue and silver salt shakers and crystal glasses and, and small butter dishes. But to allow for those essential refinements, everything else could only have the thinnest veneer of opulence because they needed everything to weigh as little as possible. One person described it when they touched the ceiling as like a piece of stage scenery. All the walls were actually fabric. The pillars in the lounge were made from balsa covered with metal. The tables were also of balsa, and the chairs were, were made of the lightest cane. So it was really kind of an illusion, the, the solidity of the ship, because you just couldn't afford to lift, you know, tons and tons of stuff. On the other side of the equation is lift. You get lift from pumping in gas that's lighter than air. In the case of R101, the gas they used was hydrogen. Well, flammable hydrogen seems like a very poor choice. It was, for a commercial airship, the only choice. You use hydrogen instead of helium, which is non-flammable, because the purpose of a ship like R101 was to transport cargo. And helium is both heavier and provides less lift than hydrogen. What you're interested in is the payload that you can lift. So if you subtract all of the weight that you have to lift, the rigid ship, the gas bags, the water, uh, the personnel... Um, In a ship like R101, if you filled it with helium, you would not have enough lift to lift the ship. The flammability of hydrogen was indeed a concern in airships, but flight engineers and crew were habituated to its dangers, much like we're habituated to the dangers of combustion engines today. They felt that you just take the proper precautions. One engineer pointed out you don't light a match and look in your gas tank in your car when you're driving around with something highly flammable uh, all of the time right now. You get the proper engineering solutions and controls to do it. The other reason why helium wasn't an option on commercial airships was the cost. Helium at that time was produced in the U.S. It comes from natural gas that's required expensive distillation plants, and most of the, the helium is in places like Kansas and Oklahoma and Texas. So they would have to pay for it to be imported into Britain. Instead, you can make hydrogen on-site very cheaply. Almost one one-hundredth of the cost of helium. So that was never really, you know, an option, never really considered. The gas bags that contain the hydrogen are their own engineering marvel. It's interesting to me as an engineer to think about the materials they had to make these gas bags. Because you have a problem in that hydrogen wants to permeate. It's a small molecule. It likes to go through things. So you need something that's very strong 
that is impermeable to hydrogen or largely impermeable and that is lightweight. And so they tried things like rubber, gelatin, glycerin, something called viscose, which is a synthetic uh, fabric. It's coated with latex. But they all failed one way or another. Like the viscose, if you crumpled it up, you could not uncrumple it. It would just crack. So they used, and this stuns me to this day, the intestines of an oxen. And specifically, the oxen intestine, it's lined with a very fine membrane. It's called the cecum. And it's very thin and flexible. And hydrogen seeps only slowly through it. Ox intestines are nearly the perfect material, except for the size. The cecum of an ox is about 30 inches by 6 inches, so a little over a square foot. And yet one of those gas bags, if you laid it out, is 30,000 square feet. And so to create one of these gas bags, you would use 50,000 of these entrails or so. In fact, there's over a million uh, and a half oxen intestines that were needed to create the 15 gas bags for R101. And it was fairly grisly work. They delivered from slaughterhouses in Argentina, at least some of the, the animals, barrels of these guts, and then they would scrape them and go through this long process to prepare them and eventually to glue them together. And to answer your question, 50,000 ox intestines, even once cured and treated to make them into gas bags, do kind of stink. They did. They did. Apparently, if you were up in the airship, you would smell, um, you know, kind of an animal smell, a musty smell also, because the cloth cover didn't allow light in. R101 had a few test flights in and around its hangar outside London to great fanfare. In fact, Bill Hammock surmises that the focus on PR and fanfare rather than more rigorous and deliberative testing led to the tragedy that was about to come on the ship's first attempted flight to India in 1930. It had left on October 4th, about 6.30 at night. About 54 people on board. Most of them worked for the Royal Airship Works, but some were observers and some were dignitaries. So it traveled across England, it traveled across the Channel into France, and there were these bruising winds. It was just winds so fierce that ground speed was only 30 miles per hour or so. And then a few minutes past two, it was about 40 miles or 64 kilometers north of Paris, and it kind of chopped through the turbulent air, flying at about 1,200 feet, but moving up and down a couple of hundred feet. And the top cover ripped open. The top cover was weak. It was one of the weakest parts of the ship. Then at that point, the gas bags, which are made of these very thin intestines, were exposed to rain. The rain pelted the gas bags. There was some decrease in lift, maybe dropped to 500 feet or so. And the control car, and no one knows why today, signaled for the engine power to be cut off. And of course, it lost all dynamic lift at that point. And it drove nose first to the ground. It slid into a grove of um, hazel and oak trees, and it burst into flame. There's some debate as to why it burst into flames. Bill Hammock thinks the fire might have been caused by calcium phosphide flares that were kept in the control car. Those ignite when water hits them. And of course, that ignited the hydrogen. At that point, just everything became charred. Only six people um, survived it. The ground was littered with these, you know, very sad everyday things. I mean, suitcases, fur-lined boots, shard shaving brushes, tin of cigarettes. I think there was a ticking watch still there. And tins of plums with its juice leaking. And then it was very quiet. And all you could hear was the hiss of the rain as it hit the hot metal and it evaporated. The wreckage had barely cooled when the British government halted their airship program for good. It was almost immediate. 
R100 had flown to Montreal and back, and it was in a shed, and it never flew again. They eventually steamrolled R100, sold some of the parts for scrap, sold some of it to people who wanted souvenirs. Even though R101 was completely destroyed in the French countryside, the burned remains did float in the sky once again, at least for a little while. Well, the wreckage of that ship was cut up into pieces, shipped back in December to Great Britain, and it went to somebody who, who takes scrap metal. And then, apparently, according to a newspaper account, it was sold to the Zeppelin company, and they used part of that metal to make the Hindenburg. Because of the romanticism wrapped up in airships, their flexibility when it comes to moving huge cargo, and the fact that it requires very little infrastructure to support their operation, the hope that airships will make a return has never gone away. I mean, I get a question a lot, you know, are airships going to come back and with new materials? Part of the reason why they don't come back is this fiery, disaster-filled legacy, which I am perpetuating right now. What politician wants to, to vote in an airship and, and, and have it crash? And somebody said, well, you know, didn't you know about the Hindenburg, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> now, I, I would note this isn't quite fair. If you look at something like the Graf Zeppelin, which was a contemporary of R101 and a predecessor to the Hindenburg, it was in service for nine years. It crossed the Atlantic 144 times, 16,000 flight hours, 590 flights, 13,000 passengers, the first aircraft ever to exceed one million flight miles, and circumnavigated the globe in just 21 days. So there is, you know, another history back there that says that these things can be made and can be made well. At this point, the airplane has had a century's worth of development in efficiency, speed, and safety, so that the need for the airship has been largely eliminated. But it passed its precedent. Some enterprising engineer is in a room full of venture capitalists right now, trying to convince them that giant airships are the solution to some pressing world problem. In the meantime, the airship will continue on in science fiction stories as this quick and easy visual cue that we're in a world that's like ours, but somehow more wondrous. One of the most memorable pieces of audio of all time and my favorite video by the engineer guy, right after this. We often don't think of winter as a time of growth or creation, but if you think about it, it's the perfect time to create your own website because you're cooped up, you're thinking about being productive, and now Squarespace can help you do it. With Squarespace, you can take your cool ideas, your creative content, your services and goods, and you can turn them into a beautiful website in just a few clicks. This is because their easy-to-use templates are created by world-class designers, and then you have the ability to customize the look and feel and the different settings for your own needs. For example, my site, romanmars.com, I made with Squarespace. The landing page features a close-up of me talking to a microphone, so it has my, you know, my very handsome beard. But if I should ever shave it, I don't have to wait for my web guy to change the photo. I can do it myself, and maybe the next photo will feature my soulful eyes. On one of the pages, I've also picked out some of my favorite episodes of 99% Invisible to share, and the audio is conveniently embedded, even on mobile. Try it yourself. Go to squarespace.com slash invisible for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code invisible to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. 
When the Hindenburg crashed and burned in a New Jersey field in 1937, a reporter from Chicago radio station WLS named Herbert Morrison was there. His real-time reaction to the disaster that was unfolding in front of him became one of the most memorable recordings in broadcast history. A couple people on staff here had never heard it before, which totally shocked me, so I wanted to play it here. You might not be able to make out all the words, but Morrison's emotions come through loud and clear. It's starting to rain again. It's, the rain had uh, cracked up a little bit. They packed motors with the ship, but just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It burst into flames. Get it started. Get it started. It's right and it's rising. It's rising terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning and bursting into flames, and, and it's falling on the morning grass, and all the folks between it. This is terrible. This is the one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's just plenty. Oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky, and it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now, and the flames rising to the ground, not quite to the morning mass. All the humanity and all the fans are just feeding around it. I don't do it. I can't even talk to people. The friends are out there. It's a, it's a, oh. I, I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. Honestly, it's just laying down massive smoking wreckage. And everybody can hardly breathe and talk and screaming. Lady, I, I, I'm sorry. Honestly, I, I can hardly breathe. I, I'm going to step inside while I cannot see it. Johnny, that's terrible. I, 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 I Listen, folks, I, I'm going to have to stop for a minute because I've lost the voice. This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed. That radio recording was later paired with newsreel footage of the disaster. 36 of the 97 people on board the Hindenburg died. When you see the footage of the burning airship, the fact that 61 people survived seems like a miracle. As I mentioned in my introduction to Bill Hammock, on YouTube he's known as Engineer Guy, and I would be remiss if I didn't point you toward his fantastic video on the ingenious design of the aluminum beverage can, which is, for my money, the greatest video on YouTube. It is 11 and a half minutes of everyday design and engineering glory. I love it. Here's a little audio sample. Why is there a tab on the end of the can? It seems a silly question. How else would you open it? But originally cans didn't have tabs. Very early steel cans were called flat tops for pretty obvious reasons. You use a special opener to puncture a hole to drink from and a hole to vent. In the 1960s, the pole tab was invented so that no opener was needed. You can find links to Bill's videos and his book on the R101 on his website, engineerguy.com. 99% Invisible is Avery Truffleman, Emmett Fitzgerald, Sharif Youssef, Taryn Mazza, composer Sean Rial, digital director Kurt Kolstad, senior editor Delaney Hall, senior producer Katie Mingle, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of 91.7 KALW in San Francisco and produced on Radio Row in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. We are part of Radiotopia from PRX, a collective of the best, most innovative shows in all of podcasting. We are supported by our listeners, just like you. You can find 99% Invisible and join discussions about the show on Facebook. You can tweet at me at Roman Mars and the show at 99PIOR. We're on Instagram, Tumblr, and Reddit too. 
but we have very fun pictures and diagrams of airships on our website. They're even more amazing than you can picture in your head at 99pi.org. Radiotopia.